from WNYC Studios. I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Thursday, July 6th. The Supreme Court ruling last week banning affirmative action by race might lead to selective colleges trying to integrate more by class. That's still allowed. Class is an imperfect surrogate for the black Americans left behind by 400 years of structural racism, but there is some overlap there, and it's legal to count freshman heads by whatever we mean by class. And that's one example of how race and class intersect in American politics, sometimes aligning, sometimes in competition with each other. New York Times correspondent David Leonhardt writes a lot these days about what he calls the class inversion of American politics. That is, Americans with college degrees are increasingly likely to vote for Democrats. Americans without college degrees are increasingly likely to vote for Republicans. That does pertain mostly to white voters. So again, race and class are imperfect surrogates for each other. But non-college graduate Latinos and, to a lesser extent, non-college degree black voters also vote Republican more than they used to. Why is this politically important? Well, in one recent article, Leonhardt noted that most U.S. voters, most, about 60 percent, do not have college degrees. And they live disproportionately where? In swing states. And the way Leonhardt crunches the numbers, if President Biden wins exactly 50 percent, of the non-college vote next year, he will almost certainly be reelected. If he wins 45%, just five points less, he will probably lose. So Leonhardt has been writing about how both Democrats and Republicans might compete effectively for that potentially decisive 5%. David Leonhardt joins us now. He writes the daily newsletter from the New York Times called The Morning and contributes to the Sunday Review section as well. David, thanks for joining us today. Always good to have you on. Welcome back to WNYC. Thank you, Brian. It's always a pleasure to be on your show. Let's start by defining some terms. You seem to use the terms working class and non-college voters pretty interchangeably on one side and college graduates and professional class interchangeably on the other. So can you describe in a little more detail who you see as being in each of those two camps? Yeah, and they're not exact. Um, And there are uh, folks out there who try to do more careful analyses based on class, sometimes looking at exact exact job types so that if you oversee other workers, you would be considered um, professional class. And if you don't oversee other workers and you work in particular industries, you'd be be considered working class. And some of the political analysis that I've looked at does that careful, very careful work. But it's often difficult to do that. And the fact is, if you just use college and non-college, you really see identical top-level patterns. And so on your show, I know you've talked about this idea of deaths of despair, which is research that's been going on for now 10 or 15 years. Mm -hmm. And this is by two Princeton economists, um, Anne Case and Angus Deaton, who have looked at what has happened to life expectancy among the working class. And they define it by education because that is what is on death certificates. Many people who do economic work also define it in that way. When you look at polls, we often don't ask people 20 questions about their job, but we do ask them about what their highest level 
level of education is. And so for broad scale research, really using the four year college degree as the dividing line um, allows you to do the most in-depth analysis. And it lines up not identically, but extremely closely to studies that that do try to do the finer analysis. So, for example, you wrote about a YouGov poll that compared different hypothetical Democratic Party candidates for a group defined as swing voters, and it found these swing voters preferred Democratic candidates who had been a teacher, a construction worker, a doctor, or a nurse before entering politics. The least popular candidate professions were lawyer and corporate executive. Uh, But aren't so many politicians from both parties, lawyers and business people? They are. I mean, often voters have to choose between two lawyers or one lawyer and a corporate executive. Um, but what that study and that study actually used the finer definition of class. It, it used the um, the definition of class that was that was based on job types. Um, uh, but it, one of the things, one of the consistent themes here is that um, on economic questions, swing voters and working class voters, and there's a lot of overlap between those two groups. Um, uh, tend to be left of center. I, I don't want to exaggerate this. They, they don't identify as socialist, but they tend to be left of center. Um, they're in fa- most of them are in favor of increases in the minimum wage, which is why when the minimum wage goes on the ballot, even in red states, it mm-hmm. tends to pass. They're in favor of expanding um, Medicaid under Obama, again, which is why when that goes on the ballot, even in red states, it passes. They're in favor of pretty tough populist language coming from candidates like John Fetterman in Pennsylvania. Um, They prefer candidates who don't look like your boss, but might look like your colleague. Um, The flip side of this, and this is the part that is harder for many progressives, is that swing voters and working class voters are more moderate even more conservative on many social issues than the Democratic Party is. And I think one of the things that the Democratic Party has struggled with is they've basically tried to tell working class voters that they're just wrong to have those views. So they're wrong to be in favor of less immigration, or they're wrong to be in favor of some abortion restrictions, or they're ignorant and they're voting against their economic interests, or even that they're hateful for having these views. And I think that's the wrong way, first of all, to persuade people. And I think, second of all, reasonable people can can disagree about these things. And one of the reasons Democrats have struggled, despite the, the, the relative progressivism of these voters on economic issues, is that many of these voters just look at the Democratic Party and they see a party that doesn't represent them on many other issues and that is increasingly the party of college graduates. Yeah. Well, let's take an example from that same YouGov poll that you cited in an article. The poll found these swing voters liked certain things that might be considered progressive and others that might be considered conservative. And you were just naming some of them. I'll zero in on two here. Like they approved of a federal jobs guarantee, which is very Bernie Sanders socialist. Yeah. But uh, a very effective promise for these swing voters from these hypothetical candidates was to protect the border. Decriminalization of the border was very unpopular. So that's pretty Trumpy or pretty MAGA. Um, but I guess my question is, do real-life candidates exist who combine those things, especially when many Democrats find protect the border to be racist code for keep out the black and brown people? So there's no doubt that there are some people like Trump who use protect the border as racist code. 
But the notion of protecting the border is not in and of itself racist. And I think one of the biggest mistakes that Democrats have made is is imagining that inherently restrictions on immigration are racist. If you go back and you look at the way that Barack Obama talked about the border, he talked about border security. If you look at the way that Bernie Sanders used to talk about immigration, Bernie Sanders would say, why is it that all these corporate executives want such high levels of immigration? Is it because they care so much about the immigrants? And Bernie Sanders would say, I don't think so. It's because they want a large labor supply that allows them to keep wages down. And so I think what the Democratic Party has had a really hard time with on immigration in particular is understanding that it's not so simple as the country has to choose between a racist policy and a policy that allows everyone who wants to enter the United States to enter. There is no country in the world that allows everybody who wants to enter to enter. When you look at countries like Japan and South Korea, they have very tight immigration restrictions. And and there's actually really no Democrats who argue that we should have an open border. In fact, they get angry when Republicans accuse them right. of being in favor of an open border. So trying to come up with the right compromise where we acknowledge that immigration involves trade-offs, I think is something that many voters are eager for. And what they hear from the Democratic Party is basically almost no willingness to talk about um, uh, immigration restrictions, to talk about what were the kind of things that would lead to deportation. And that is a real change. So to your question of who combines these things, the answer is Democrats as recently as Barack Obama combined these things. But the party in response to Trump has become less comfortable with talking about immigration in those nuanced ways. And at the same time, on the Republican side, Republicans who may once upon a time, like George W. Bush and Ronald Reagan, have made deals uh, to allow people who've been here and law-abiding for a while to have a path to citizenship. Even the most sympathetic group, like the Dreamers, right, those who were raised as Americans but brought here illegally when they were really young, Republicans are against all of that now. But you use yes. two, dem- two, two Democrats now in Congress as examples of success in that same article. So let me name these names. Senator Mark Kelly of Arizona and Congresswoman Marcy Kaptur of Ohio. Why them? Um, well, so and there are more than that. But if you if you look at another study um, that was done by Data for Progress, which is a progressive group. They went out and they looked at a whole bunch of the messages that Democrats used in the midterms. Um, and then they basically tried to to put kind of subject these messages to the rigors of, of a social science test. And so um, you give uh, different people in a survey different messages and you ask what appeals to them. And, and the kind of Democrats who have done really well um, are the kind who have talked about border security, who have talked about the importance of bringing down crime, um, who have talked in kind of nuanced ways about a lot of these um, social issues. Um, um, and who also tend to be really quite populist um, on economic issues, right? They're not th- – th- this notion that the way to appeal to the American middle 
is some sort of Mike Bloomberg style, um, socially liberal and economically conservative. And I have enormous regard for for many of the things Mike Bloomberg accomplished as New York mm -hmm. mayor. But the notion that that's where the American center lies is almost exactly flipped. It, it, it isn't with the socially liberal, economically conservative. It's much more likely to be with the economically progressive and the socially moderate. And so it's John Fetterman, it's Marie Glusenkamp Perez, who owns a car repair shop in Washington state and talks about how her own party, the Democrats, is too elitist. It's Sherrod Brown in, in Ohio, who's no one's idea of a moderate. He's very populist and left on economics, but he manages to avoid making his campaign all about these social issues that tell working class people, um, uh, hey, the Democrats aren't the party for you. Um, hey, we think you're ignorant. Um, we think you're wrong on all these social issues. So you cite that today's Democratic Party has come to be associated with the establishment. Establishment in what ways, I'm curious, if it's more responsive to various groups who are considered marginalized, like black and Latino and Asian American voters all preferred Biden in 2020, as did voters marginalized by sexual orientation or gender status, including women. I'm looking at stats from the Cornell University Roper Center that say Biden won women by 15 points, while Trump won among men. So how, in race and gender terms, does that add up to the Democrats are the party of the establishment? I think that, and that's a notion that I borrowed from my colleague, Nate Cohn, who is the Times' chief elections analyst. And um, it's, it is a somewhat amorphous idea. But if you just look at Joe Biden and look at Donald Trump, right, which one of them seems to be um, defending the establishment and which one of them seems to be challenging it? Now, I do not say any of that as a defense of Donald Trump's attempts to execute a coup of Donald Trump's obvious racism, of Donald Trump's encouragement of violence, of his constant lies. But if we're just asking ourselves which one of those two sends sends a message to voters who don't follow politics as closely as you and I do, which one is from the establishment and which one isn't, I think it seems pretty clear that it's Biden who is defending, I would argue, many basic American values, but also feels more like an establishment figure, whereas it's Trump who's trying to kind of overturn what feels like the establishment. That is, again, it's amorphous. Yeah. I don't think it's necessarily the most important thing going on here. But if you are angry about, about the way American life is going, if you're frustrated for whatever reason, good or bad, reasonable or hateful, who's the person who sort of seems like they want to upset the apple cart? Well, in 1992, it was pretty clear that George H.W. Bush represented the establishment and either Bill Clinton or Ross Perot represented something like an insurgency. And I would say even though Trump was president, he's pretty clearly flipped it. So he portrays himself as the anti-establishment politician in a way that appeals to some voters. M another colleague of mine, Ested Herndon, who's the host of the Run Up podcast, says that he thinks he's done a ton of reporting interviewing voters out there. And he's th said that he thinks that one thing that those of us who, who 
follow politics kind of intellectually and analytically underestimate is how much Donald Trump's notion of fun um, appeals to a certain segment of voters. I do think that segment of voters is predominantly male um, uh, and predominantly white, although increasingly also voters of color. It's predominantly male. But but there is this sort of notion that I do think appeals to some frustrated people. And we yeah. should talk well, more about race as part of it. And we will. Uh, but also about the idea of what actually constitutes the establishment. A lot of Democrats would say that Trump-style conservatives are trying to uphold old things in American life, a lot of undesirable old things by Democrats' uh, views that are more established or establishment than what the Democrats represent. I'll give you a couple of other examples. One is um, the... Cornell Roper numbers show that Biden won voters making less than $100,000 a year by more than 10 points. Trump won voters making more than 100000 by more than 10 points. So which party did working class Americans really choose? Well, so I would really encourage you to be people to be careful with exit polls. Exit polls are are problematic in all kinds of ways. The best work that is done by this is done by groups like um, Catalyst, which don't re rely on exit polls, but instead rely on very careful work involving voter files. It takes months and months to do. It's not simply um, based on on an exit poll, and so it, it's it's not the case. It is absolutely And I'm not sure, case. by the way, I'm not sure if the Cornell Roper numbers were exit polls. I didn't see them labeled as such. So it might have also been a later post-election analysis, but I'm not sure. Okay. So, I mean, if you look at the, if you look, it is very clear based on the, the most careful work from any source. And Nate Cohn has done the best work describing this in the Times, and he talks about the many different sources. It's, it's, so the latest catalyst numbers, for example, showed that 59% of college graduates, um, in 2020 voted for, um, Joe Biden. That's the two-way Democratic share. It ignores third-party candidates, but third-party candidates weren't that significant in 2020. So 59% of college voters voted for Biden. 48% of non-college voters voted for Biden. Now, education and income don't align perfectly. Um, uh, and it is, it is the case if you sort of think of a classic more educated lower-income person or middle-income person like a teacher, they would tend to skew Democratic, whereas a classic less educated higher income person, maybe like an entrepreneur, um, uh, would, would tend to skew Republicans. So the divide is not quite as stark with income. Um, but by any number of measures, it is very clear that large numbers of working class people have moved to the Republican Party in recent decades, and large numbers of college graduates have moved to the Democratic Party. It is also the case that large numbers of lower income people have moved to the Republican Party, and large numbers of higher income people have moved to the Republican to the Democratic Party. And so it, I'm not saying there are definitely measures when you look at it that show that Joe Biden still won. I think the 10 percentage points is exaggerated. Joe Biden still won a, a small majority of lower income voters, depending on exactly where you draw the line. Um, but, but doesn't that also bring us back to race as perhaps the crucial demographic in American politics more than this class divide that we've been describing, uh, or maybe what race plus 
white conservative Christianity? Because in so many of these income and gender and other categories, I think Trump won among whites but lost among blacks. Yes. I think after Donald Trump won in 2016, there was a, a big debate among analysts and people in politics in which the debate you could basically boil it down to was it all about racism? Was Trump's uh, greater ability to win working class voters than Mitt Romney's, who was the Republican nominee prior to Trump? Was it just all about racism? And I think many progressives adopted that analysis. And I think over, I, I, I thought it was problematic at the time, but the evidence has certainly made it look less compelling since 2016. Because as you mentioned in your introduction, Brian, large numbers of non-white people have moved toward the Republican Party in the last five years. So the shift of Latino voters toward Republicans has been really big. In 2016, again, I'm using the catalyst data. Uh, in 2016, Hillary Clinton won 71% of Latino voters, very similar to what Barack Obama had won in 2012. Uh, in, in 2020, that share fell to 62%. So Democrats lost nine percentage points among Latino voters. Democrats, uh, and that was mostly not about the difference between Hillary and Biden, the big drop in Democratic support among Latinos happened in 2018. Um, we also have seen a big shift among Asian American voters toward Republicans. And New York is arguably the single best place to look at that. Um, there are just New York neighborhoods in Brooklyn and Queens that were super strongly Democratic, heavily Asian neighborhoods that are now about 50-50 or even tipped toward the Republicans. There is even a couple of percentage points in which Black voters have shifted toward Republicans, either in terms of actually shifting, although the numbers are still quite small, or in terms of not voting. And so for progressives who basically would say this is just racism, the only reason any working class person could possibly support Republicans is because of racism and hatefulness, um, uh, I would say what explains this large shift uh, among voters of color to the right over the last five years. We see it in Florida. We see it in Texas. We see people in Texas electing um, strongly pro-border security Republicans in some cases, or Democrats who talk about immigration in ways that are very different from the way that progressive, highly educated Democrats talk about it. And so I think it's really important for Democrats to grapple with that and ask themselves, what could it be that is causing working class people who have struggled so much more than college graduates by any measure over the last several decades to, to shift to the right? And are we making a mistake both tactically and morally by saying the only possible way they could vote for a Republican is out of ignorance and hate? And I would say the answer is that is both a tactical and moral mistake. Khalil in South Orange. You're on WNYC with David Leonhardt from the New York Times. Hi, Khalil. Hey, hey, Brian. Thanks for having me. It's Khalil Gibran Mohammed, in case you remember that name. Oh, really? Uh, David. Hi. <laughs> yes. I am a Harvard professor, and uh, I've been listening very carefully to this conversation. I have two simple points to make. One, the notion of economic populism among whites has been the most dominant theme in uh, elites, whether they were the plantation elites or the founding father elites, uh, who essentially gave them a little bit more in exchange for embracing their whiteness. There's just no way 
to not understand everything from indenture servitude to the populist era of the late 19th century without understanding the increasing use of white supremacy as a tool to encourage working class white people to accept less in terms of the economic pie. And the second point is the point you just made about the attractiveness of the right to people who are of color. There's a very long history, David, of kind of immigrant from Asia, from Latin America, coming into the country, surveying the scene, including Caribbean immigrants, and saying, the closer you are to whiteness, the better you have a shot at the American dream. And Trump has exploited that uh, by using the optics of people of color, of black pastors opening his rallies. Uh, and the truth is that in Latin America, the divide over socialism uh, versus neoliberalism means that people of color also can fight over how to organize an economic system, and they bring those sensibilities to this country. So racism, particularly anti-black racism, still operates in this context. We have not let that go. I'm done. And by the way, listeners, for those of you who might have recognized the name from the show or elsewhere, but not sure exactly from where, where uh, Khalil Gibran Muhammad is a professor at Harvard now, as he said, but he used to run the Schomburg Center, uh, that part of the New York Public Library, and come on as a guest periodically here in that context when he was in New York, plus for some of his writings. But it's that Khalil Gibran Muhammad. Uh, David, go ahead. I mean, look, I agree with so much of that, right? The, 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 is racism a central part of American history? Is it our enduring shame? Is it a huge part of our society today? Absolutely. The answer to all those questions is yes. Does Donald Trump and do many other Republicans use racism in their appeals? All that is yes. My argument is not whether is racism a crucial part of American society. It undeniably is. Is it the only thing that explains these shifts? And I think there is really strong evidence that it is not the only thing that explains these shifts. And so the question becomes, how do, for the Democratic Party, how does it staunch its losses among working class people, including working class people of color? One possible answer to that is to tell them that the only thing that Republicans have to offer them is racism. I don't think that's been particularly successful if you look over the last 20 years or the last five years. And so to me, I think it's worth being introspective about what are ways in which the Democratic Party alienates working class people that isn't simply a story that puts the Democratic Party on the side of truthness and morality and 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 anybody who votes conservative on the side of ignorance and hate. And that's I'm asking for that more nuanced analysis of this. David Leonhardt from the New York Times, for whom the class and version of American politics is a recurring theme. You can see it show up in the Times, the morning newsletter, uh, which David usually writes, and the Sunday review section, his other main platform. David, thank you so much for coming on and having this conversation. We always appreciate these. Brian, thanks for the rich conversation, and thanks for the tough questions. It makes for much better conversation. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time. <music>